0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, How Did You End Up Here? I'm Jamie Hare and I'm talking to people in interesting jobs and finding out what path they took to get there. This week I'm talking to broadcaster, producer and lecturer, Annie Maguire. Annie, thank you for giving us some time today. Can you just give me your current job title or titles?
1: Titles in my case, yes. So my full-time job is as a lecturer in journalism here at the University of the West of Scotland, as well as that I have a position of social media producer, I think my title is, at um, the BBC. That's working on Question Time, which is quite a fun thing to work on. And I also occasionally um, stand in for Tam Cowan, on off the ball on BBC Radio Scotland. I don't really consider that a job. That's one of like a hobby that actually happens to pay quite well.
0: It's <laughs> good fun. Yes. And then, um, so, so you you're sort of multi you're multitasking uh, along a I wonder if you th- feel just to sort of kick off where you are at the moment. Is that sort of um we've got a lot of students at UWS, is that a feature you think in the future people will be multitasking across or is that sort of unique to your own field or are you just, because you're a very hard worker, which you know, you are a very hard worker, but uh, is, is it sort of unique to yourself or can you see that being the norm for people?
1: I think it's more and more the norm and it's something that we're trying to kind of prepare our journalism and other kind of creative industry students for. Um, I was freelance when I started teaching in here and it was something that was in the mix of different jobs that I was doing. Um, I went freelance because it gives you a wee bit of freedom to do different things. And once you've opened up your mind to the possibility of doing, I do a wee bit of this and a wee bit of that and I've got that project, it's very hard to then shut your mind off and go, I'm just going to have a nine to five job and that'll be fine and I'll turn off all those Mm -hmm. other bits of my brain. Um, So I think that kind of portfolio of work um, is much more what's going to be there in the future. I'm just an early adopter, Jamie.
0: You're I'm a a, a slightly ahead of, of the curve on that one. And, t- and now uh, so you're born in Eldersley?
1: I was born in Govan, actually. In
0: Govan, but, Southern General?
1: Uh, no, a little <laughs> a little um, nursing home run by nuns, Jamie, okay. in the Ibrox area. Ah right, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> um but yeah, brought up in Eldersley and I've lived in Eldersley pretty much all my life apart from a wee spell in Glasgow and a wee spell in London. OK, um, but yeah. But
0: you're, a, you're obviously identified in the Paisley area, that's how yeah, you're identified. Yeah, I your... mean,
1: don't get into the tough wars between Eldersley and Paisley, L-play, but yeah. No. It's he- heavy, yes. is it? Um, Paisley's been a big part of my childhood as well, that's where my parents were both from and it's kind of the the large town, it's not a city that people mm. would gravitate towards, so that's kind of been a big part of me growing up as well.
0: So you were at school, eight, nine, ten years old. People ask "Say Annie, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm. What was your answer? Can you remember?
1: Probably at that stage I wanted to be a teacher. Okay. Um, My dad was an English teacher and I just thought that was the best job in the world, never to actually have to leave school and to get to read books and talk about English. Um, But my dad was very strongly against that idea um, because he felt that teachers weren't respected enough for the incredible work that they do. And he said, go and do something else. Go and do something that you're appreciated in. And I remember him sitting me down and making me watch Kirsty Wark present a programme. And I was quite young. And and I can't remember what it was. It was maybe Left, Right and Centre or something like that. He's like, you could be a journalist. You could go and do that and travel the world and see things. Or you could stay in a wee school in Paisley the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Yes, opening up people's futures, but not necessarily getting much credit or thanks for it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was kind of weird. probably around about that time you've identified the kind of the messages were being sent to me that maybe teaching wasn't the be all and end all so the fact that I've ended up sort of doing journalism and teaching, teaching. has probably rounded that it's, off quite nicely. You've got
0: perfectly knitted yes. them together <laughs> and do you you did study literature at university is mm-hmm. that right?
1: I, I did Scottish literature and film and television studies. Um,
0: what was your thoughts behind that? What sort of,
1: actually I turned up um, with my name down for English literature mm-hmm. um, and I took one look in the giant lecture hall at Glasgow Uni and I had left school at 16, I went straight after my hires I'd just turned 17 when I went to university I was very young and very green and I just looked and thought I can't be in this 400 strong lecture theatre trying to fight for survival mm. Um and I was wandering past the Scottish Literature Department which is just like one of the wee houses up on University Avenue and I thought oh I didn't even know Scottish literature was a thing I put my head in. I looked in the reading list in there and because they had it up in the wall in those days. And the reading list for first year was like Train Spotting, which was at that time a play, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and The Slab Boys, which I had loved because it's set in Eldersley, and various other things like um, Ian Banks and James Kelman. And I thought, hang on a minute, what am I doing English literature for Mm -hmm. but I could come here, the classes were like 40 strong, every lecturer knew you by name and um, now that I'm teaching that I come back to what that difference was between doing English literature and doing Scottish literature was for me that I was doing books that I could really connect with and I was in a class size and, and a situation where my lecturers knew who I was. So that was one of the better decisions I made in my life. Yeah. Film and TV was great as well. Um, I was more of a television person than a film person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very kind of theoretical degree at Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Um, and the theory of kind of television I could get into, the theory of film was a wee bit above me at seventeen probably. <laughs> um, complicated. Yeah, um but television I just I have always found that kind of mass media fascinating the things that can bring a whole nation together round about watching a sporting event or a big political debate. It's those kind of key events that have always kind of fascinated me. So mm-hmm. I loved I loved Scottish literature, I loved television and I quite enjoyed that we went to the cinema once a week as part of my degree and watched a film. And did you get too much practical work? We did a wee bit in third year oh. <laughs> yeah. where we had to do a 30-minute live TV programme. Okay. And it was called... Oh, it was high concept, Jamie. Right. It was called Roll the Bones. And okay, it was like a feature kind of programme and you had like a giant cardboard dice and, and you would roll that and depending on what number it landed on, controlled which was the next item in the programme which awesome. was all fine and we had Richard Wilson at a one foot in the grave yes. as our live studio guest. Okay, awesome. Um, we had a live studio band mm-hmm. and it was all going great and then the day of the programme our presenter, who wasn't part of our group work team, someone yeah. we'd got in, just didn't ever turn up <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had to get the uh, guy who was in charge of the band, mm-hmm. Brian Motley, now a very successful um, jazz musician mm-hmm. in his own right. He had to present the program, I think, um, with very little practice and very so. Yeah,
0: to, 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 did it give you a good intro, introductions to the? Yeah. not that I'm saying any of your colleagues at the BBC just just forget <laughs> to show up, up. <laughs> but uh, but it gave you a, a sort of
1: it yeah. gave me a wee I, I loved the buzz even though it went badly wrong mm-hmm. I loved the buzz of it and I loved being in a TV studio and, and the sense of um, collaboration and how everybody had to work together and even that that last minuteness of someone else having to be the presenter that's flipping showbiz mm-hmm. you know? yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I yeah. liked that of kind of oh it's all going wrong but the show must go yeah, on yeah, yeah. Richard Wilson's arriving yeah. any moment Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it gave me a wee kind of a taste of that and I think um from that point on, I probably did really want to work in television, although mm. I later found out radio was kind of even more fun.
0: Yeah, even more fun. <laughs> and so so after after Scotch you studied journalism?
1: Well, um my first I, I worked for a couple of years. So um this again there's there's a there's a tale here for students yeah. in that uh, the SFA were setting up a football museum mm-hmm. and the guy who was in charge of it, Jed O'Brien randomly went to Glasgow uni even though it was a highly theoretical course and said do you have any recent graduates in film and television who love their football and you know there were probably loads but because I was the girl one. Mm -hmm. And we had a film society as well when I was at Glasgow Uni, which involved me um, voluntarily sitting in the wee box office in the film and TV department in case anyone wanted to buy a ticket to see the films. But it meant I was there a lot and present. um, And Tony Pearson, who was one of the kind of heads of department, would always... He was a Bolton fan. Okay. And it was about that time there was a bit of rivalry between Celtic and Bolton. And me and him would just kind of talk about the football all the time. So when... The SFA went looking for somebody. I was in his head because I had been in his face. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's
0: a good lesson, isn't it, yeah. to youngsters just uh-huh. to because you know almost think it's university. It's it's good to you know get the qualification, but just to be meeting people and doing mm-hmm. stuff and having a body of work and mm-hmm. that's that's as important. And you you think you have that experience bore that out? Of?
1: Yeah, I think it's about like don't hide your light under a bushel if you've Mm. got interests, make sure people know you've got those interests. I think there's so many graduates out there in the world and even, you know, we'll turn out say 30 journalism graduates this Mm. year, each one of them have their own unique things, but if people yeah. don't know about it, then they don't know, oh, you'd be brilliant for this. So you so you are mm-hmm. you are kind of more than the sum of your parts, but you've got to let us know what the sum yeah. of your parts are. So for example, there's one of our fourth years who's doing stand-up comedy, and I didn't yeah, know yeah. she's doing stand-up comedy, and I was like, that's brilliant. Yeah. And now she'll be in my head if anybody's looking for someone that but you've got to kind yeah. of bear that Promote out and, and be more than just a graduate mm-hmm. because had I had they put that job advert in the paper. I'm sure they would have been absolutely deluged with mm-hmm. people wanting to go and work at the SFA in that kind of role. But as yeah. it happens, I just yeah. went for a job interview and worked there. So okay. I was at the SFA for two years. And I, at that point, I wanted to be a football journalist. And it let me, without having to elbows out, try and get a job as a football journalist. Yeah. I got to go out and interview like Jimmy Johnston and Arch McPherson and mm. Willie Henderson and all these kind of big names. Without, before I'd even done my journalism qualification, yeah, yeah. I had that kind of hinterland mm-hmm. and also just a really good... It was almost like another qualification mm-hmm. to study the history of Scottish football for two years yeah. in in... And and that museum's quite interesting. I'm not plugging it <laughs> but it kind of takes Scottish football and looks at sure. it through a social history kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not a knowledge that a lot of your kind of your your average football journalist mm-hmm. maybe hasn't looked at it through that prism. Yeah, yeah. Um and so that was a very kind of interesting and I I think it was a a good solid foundation. Through that I got to meet a lot of football journalists who were there writing features on it mm-hmm. and um, and a few of them just encouraged me and said you could actually do this you know and so I went back and did a postgrad in journalism at that point when I was maybe 23 or 24 Mm -hmm. so I had a couple of years out between my two degrees which was good it gave me a sort of a some postgrads as well. they're quite competitive to get into and it Mm -hmm. really I again was bringing something different to that application by saying I want to be and this is what I've done already rather than I want to do your postgrad in journalism and I'm just
0: another graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. You had some good experience. And did you, you obviously touch on football, did you, were you someone that went along to football? You you're in that, because I used, well, I, when I was like 12, I wanted to be a sports journalist. I think, all oh, these guys are coming to this, you know, <laughs> coming to see Rangers today and they're getting paid to be here. Uh-huh. That must. Uh, and you know they go to the World Cup and, and uh-huh. they're getting paid to do all that. Did you sort did you join the dots like that? Or was um, it just something that came...
1: So, I, yeah, I had a Celtic season ticket before I worked at the BBC. And, and I think the minute you become a professional sports journalist, you do stop being mm-hmm. a real fan because your relationship to it changes and you're not going up... Climbing up your concrete staircases to yeah. sit in the, like the cheapest seat manufacturable yeah, yeah, yeah. to man yeah. with only cold water in the taps. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, it does change. And so I can't pretend to have continued beyond that because then on Saturdays I was in the Radio Scotland studio. It's yeah. not the same. Um, growing up, it was interesting. So I had two big brothers. A lot of my love of football, I think, came through TV sport, particularly Scott sport. Yeah. Um, I think because of the time that it was on and a kind of Sunday afternoon was yeah. really kind of family friendly. So yeah. you would grow up or now it's on, it kind of gets jiggled about yeah. football where you can watch it. Um so those are kind of my earliest memories were kind of a very kind of male dominated household, so football it wasn't negotiable that mm. football was on and so I kind of got to like it through yeah. that. Um interestingly we were sort of banned from supporting Celtic. <laughs> <laughs> um my dad was a Saint Miran fan. He, but both my mum, my mum's family were big Celtic fans. I think they had concerns about some of the kind of safety concerns that people have about children wandering about. So we certainly were not allowed to have Celtic strips or Celtic footballs or anything like that, which is kind of a weird West of Scotland thing. Um, once we were kind of big enough to make our own choices yeah, yeah. inevitably if you ban your children from doing something that's like I'm going, to be, I'm going to go along yeah, to Celtic yeah. part. Um so yeah I'd say it was more in my teenage years that I got into mm-hmm. actively supporting Celtic yeah. um, but I do still I still have a soft spot for St Mirren, which has obviously been augmented by the work that we've done here at the yeah, University of yeah, the West yeah. of Scotland but that was yeah. my first games were St Mirren games mm-hmm. and I would go along with my dad right through my t- to go to see in St Martin with him that was kind of yeah. definitely his team Um so yeah but it does change once you start working in it mm-hmm. you know you can find yourself having actual uh, gripes with your own club which right. is weird Celtic uh-huh. <laughs> like, bloody Celtic <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh well no, um, so from the museum, you've uh, you've obviously worked at the museum. You went to to study journalism. Mm-hmm. We still working at the museum part time yes. or, yeah. or full time. You know me, Jamie. I uh, like to keep you a few things. You're probably working full time and doing the full time.
1: <laughs> yeah, I kept that kind of going because the museum was open by that point, and the exciting bit for me was getting everything together for the mm. museum opening. And I kind of felt once it was opening, we were a bit like Jannies, you know, because you've right. written all the history and you. sure. And and I didn't want to be just opening it up and making sure everyone had a nice day. So yeah. I, I I kind of kept working there. Um, And it was good because I started working at the Herald on Sundays as well while Mm -hmm. I was a student. And I was able to go to them with the story of Andrew Watson, the world's first black footballer, being Scottish. Because Mm -hmm. that was something that we'd discovered through the research. I hadn't. Jed O'Brien had discovered it by looking through photos. And it was a weird one, actually, because everything pointed to the world's first black footballer being in this photograph, but because nobody had ever written anything about yeah, it and yeah. going, See that Scotland team, there's a photograph of a, there's a black guy in that photograph, but nobody commented yeah, on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So it was almost like we were sort of fact checking in an era before mm-hmm. fact checking, going, Are we right? Yeah, like is yeah. this are, are our eyes right here? Mm-hmm. Um but at the time it really wasn't that big a deal yeah, yeah. that he was black. So it wasn't yeah. written about extensively. Yeah, yeah, he, was, yeah. he was the was son just... of a merchant and yeah, yeah. he was a, you know, a kind of middle class, upper middle class boy. So there yeah, was no yeah. comment, there was no scandal. Um, but being able to take that story from my Scottish football museum job to my Herald shifts that I was doing meant that I had a kind of a big, I think it was a page three exclusive in the Herald before I finished my course mm-hmm. with a byline on it which then, after my course, there was this thing called the Herald Fellowship Prize, um, which I think it's a shame that places don't do things like this anymore. Basically, every year, the Herald would take one graduate off this postgrad and give them a job for a year, and oh. most people stent- mm-hmm. tended to stay there. Um, and I won that because I, I had, like, a story in their paper. Yeah, um, yeah. so But that kind of thing of keeping all those different plates spinning was what gave me the ammunition to go geese mm. that job. I love yeah. that job, thanks. Yeah, and yeah. That, um, it, that was me getting that job. And it was um, Joan McAlpine was the person who interviewed it. She's now an SNP, MSP. And it's funny where all these people end up, but yeah. it was Joan that gave me my first proper journalism job mm-hmm. at the Herald. And... I couldn't I remember I can still picture her phone where I was when she phoned to say I got a job at the Herald and I was just that was my life made. I was mm, awesome. <laughs> if nothing else happened, I had a job at the Herald. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. That was amazing. Um and, and the Herald back then was still a really Big name newspaper, you know. I think it has its troubles at the moment. um But uh, that was, if, if I'd never got another job, I'd have been really happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that so was that was, new,
0: and that was full. You were full time then. Full time. The, yeah, at the
1: Yeah, and that was a news job, mm-hmm. which I was still all the way through my kind of post grad. I was choosing sports options and broadcasting options, and I was like, why am I applying for a news job at a newspaper? Because it was a full time job that I knew I could get, and it was much easier to move to where I wanted to go from that position of strength and having won that prize it was much easier to mm-hmm. then nag the BBC and giving me a job which is essentially what happened <laughs> well,
0: So how did, how, how did that come about? In what, in, in what way can, can you suggest to young Mm -hmm. graduates how they might nag the bbc into getting a job
1: you need to get to know the people first Mm -hmm. i don't think going straight into nag mode
0: yeah it's
1: the best idea you have to
0: sort of Uh buy them a drink first and uh, be nice to them and that sort of thing so back
1: back let's go back a couple of jobs when i was at the scottish football museum and obviously i had this interest in television i had said could i come in and film a sort of behind the scenes on how friday sports scene as it was then gets made so that was just Mm -hmm. too much fun like hanging about with little tiny cameras filming everything and most of it never saw the light of day (laughs) but it meant I was just embedded there for a week and I kind of got to know everybody Mm -hmm. then they came out and they did they did an episode of Offside remember the programme that Tam Cowan used to present so they were out at the museum for that I was really good fodder for any time there was, you know, a cup final or something like that where you needed to do a kinda of historical piece. So they were kind of in mm-hmm. and out and I got to know them all. Um and then a job came up on a programme called Footballers Lives because it was around the era of Footballers' Wives. Ah, so that's okay. BBC Scotland in Footballers' Lives. Right, okay. See okay. what they did. There? Very what they've done. Um and it was a researcher job and um and I applied for it. So mm-hmm. I nagged them but I didn't nag them. Really, a job came up and they knew who I was at that point. But there were questions in that interview that had I not kind of been working with them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I would not have known the answers. Oh, yeah. And I worked there when I was a student as well. Awesome. And <laughs> I it, worked. That was Saturdays. I worked at the BBC. Right. Sundays I worked at the Herald. Okay. And then I did kind of two days in the museum. And you were still a and student. And I was a full-time student. Awesome. So, yeah, I used to, on Saturdays when I was a student, I did the dugout with Doogie Vipond, mm-hmm. where we would take this plastic dugout around all the football grounds in Scotland and we would interview the fans of a, whatever team yes, about an that. issue of the day, mm-hmm. and that was my job. And I'd just, because I sort of knew the people there, I'd sent an email to Tom Connor saying, who's the boss there now, uh, saying, I'm going back to uni I need a Saturday job, I'll do anything. Mm-hmm. And I really expected to make the tea. And they were like, okay, yeah, you could be AP on this. And it's like, what? That was too easy. That brilliant. was too easy. Um, but it shows that, like, you can ask and you mm-hmm. might end up getting told to make the tea. Yeah. But also, I think, you could do something more than that. Yeah, 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 no,
0: definitely. <laughs> well, uh, it's, in, in every, you know, everyone's, every, the person who makes a tea's got uh, a role to play themselves. and yeah. You know, it never, you're never just making a tea anyway. You're always, uh-huh. There's always something else going to come up that you'd have to do. But
1: that was, I think a lot of people would um, shy away from doing, like, broadcasting as mm-hmm. a Saturday job yeah. when you don't have the skills. But actually, that was more of, like, an editorial job of have we asked enough people the questions? And then mm-hmm. I would sit with the highly trained editor in an edit suite and I would say, I want that guy, that guy, that guy. Yeah. So I think here, the world has obviously changed. And here we are teaching students a lot about, like self-shooting and self-editing and and they can kind of worry that they're not quite up to scratch on the technical things to go in and do that but the reality is the main skill that was needed was editorial and Mm. can I put this on the telly and is it good entertainment and what order should these things go in and that is not marking ins and outs and splices and you know and that's I think in teaching people journalism now that's something that I think is We've got to not get too distracted by the technological stuff because your main yeah. skill is still going to be what happens in your brain yeah, yeah. of saying of decision making. Mm-hmm. So I was able to do that job even though I, ha- I was still a student.
0: Mm-hmm. And the the news at the Herald. being I been mean, a news reporter. Did you like? Is it a dis- different discipline doing news and journalism? Uh, sorry, news and sport, or
1: I would say is, news is, is kind of the core of doing journalism in mm-hmm. any in any way. You've kind of got to be able to do mm-hmm. news and to learn a subject in a day and write it and get somebody to speak to you about it and move on is kind of like a core skill that yeah. you kind of need to have and then you can do anything with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't... <sighs> news journalism. I, there were things that I was asked to do that I wasn't that comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um Things like um, Ricky Fulton found out that he had Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. and the Herald sent me out to doorstep him to talk to. Him. And it was the day, I don't know if it was the day he found out, but it was mm-hmm. the he's announced it. And you're knocking somebody's door, and eventually he did let me in mm-hmm. because his dog liked me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I remember saying <coughs> to one of my editors, "I don't, feel, I don't think this is a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. I actually don't think this is what people expect." The Herald to do, uh-huh. um, and he was like, "Well, you know, here's the choices available to me. I can send you, who's a nice person, or I can send somebody that's just going to do a hatchet job. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you can tell yourself with the fact that you'll do this yeah. and you'll do it in quite a compassionate way. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I'm sending you. And you're, like, mm, I don't mm. know. Uh, and there was a few other things like that. We just thought, I'm not. Absolutely sure I feel comfortable with some of the things that I'm doing, mm-hmm. and I knew I wanted to do sport anyway, so the the, the writing was always yeah, sort yeah. of on the wall um because I wanted to do sport, and I knew that was where I was going, so every time they asked mm. me to do something, I'm not mm. sure I should be doing yeah. this and yeah. and the reality is when you are the newest news reporter in the door, you get a lot of that stuff, yeah yeah, um and I'm sure I would have graduated on to. You know, being a health correspondent, or yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. doing doing less of the kind of the door knocky mm-hmm. type yeah. stuff. Um, but for me, when the opportunity came to go, I went. <laughs> yeah, but I, I look back on it very fondly, and I think it has stood me in really good stead. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad to have done some actual inky-fingered newspaper journalism Mm -hmm. while it was still a thing.
0: (laughs) Because, yeah,
1: it it was good to be a part of that kind of era and that environment as well. And also for me, it was a commercial enterprise, Mm -hmm. which I'm glad I did before I went to the BBC, because I think that's a good wee edge to have is, uh, you know, guys, sometimes you need to do stuff that people actually mm-hmm. actively want to pay money for. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm glad that I did it.
0: You've, you've got it. And you must make you quite credible as well in the eyes of all the people that you're teaching.
1: Yeah, you. I don't know. Check with them. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, I, I like the fact that I can see I've done radio, TV, online, newspapers and social media. hmm so I've kind of done everything, cool. and I can and for teaching. That's really good.
0: So at the BBC in sport, have you anything? I say I don't want to sit here and go. Well, tell me about all the famous people <laughs> next. That's not really what it's about. But then you look back on and go, "Oh, this was you were really proud of." Or, What's your, what sort of early things were you covering? I, I, can I ask what kind of what kind of year are we talking? What kind of time are we talking? So about? So
1: that was uh, oh, it was the glory years, Jamie. It was <laughs> like. 2002, which was just in the wake of the clubs trying to set up SPFL TV mm-hmm. and that collapsing, and yes. them having no deal, so the BBC swept up absolutely all the rights mm-hmm. for next to nothing. So we would have like lunchtime sports scene on a Saturday, previewing all the matches. Then we would have the afternoon sports scene, which had all the ga- all the goals at five o'clock, which was just incredible to mm-hmm. have on. We would have Saturday evening would be the kind of the analysis show with um, like Gordon Smith and his tactics table and yep. all that. And then on Sunday, we would have a live game like every week. Yep. It was incredible. And to come in, it, that was real boom time for BBC Scotland. And it gave me experience across all those kind of previews and live matches and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, so... Then kind of fast forward to like 2004 and Satanta happens and we lose all the rights. (laughs) So it went from boom to bust. And at that point, I went down to London for nine months. Um, Kind of because I had to, because there really weren't that many jobs in Scotland anymore. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't... I was in, by no means pushed out the door, but it was like, really, you know, the bad times are coming, so if you can find yeah. something else. So I went down to work on Match of the Day and Grandstand and all that as a sub-editor. And I was still quite young, and you were dealing with, like, um, Ray Stubbs mm-hmm. and uh, and Gary Lineker and people like that. And uh, that really, I don't know, it gave me a good kick up the bottom mm-hmm. to kind of see that there's, there's more than a wee sports department in Glasgow yeah. that... You know, getting booted out of there might not actually be the worst thing that ever happened. Anyway, I did my first Wimbledon as part of that and that was just amazing. That was like, I can't believe I'm actually in the same room Mm -hmm. as Jimmy Connors and Boris Becker and John McEnroe. And that was that. It's quite a kind of early highlight, but it was a real... You know, in, in not that many steps I was sitting with people that I never imagined I would breathe the same air as, never mind be sort of yeah, colleagues yeah. with. Um, so that was good and that kind of made me set my sights a wee bit higher. Mm-hmm. There was a wee guy playing in like, I don't know, whatever it is, the under 18s at Wimbledon called Andy Murray and at that point I started kind of pitching saying, We should cover this guy Mm -hmm. Um, and it took a while before we actually did start covering the rise Mm -hmm. of Andrew Murray as he was back then Um, so that was kind of an early highlight I don't know I've had so many adventures as part of the Paul Lambert footballers lives we did Mm -hmm. one in Paul Lambert and um, we thought it would be a great idea we were like what do you do Paul what's the person behind the footballer (laughs) and it turns out Paul Lambert watches a lot of Columbo Right, uh, very good, into Colombo, yeah. yeah. Um, but he was like, oh, I, don't, I don't really do much, like, like I play pool with Henrik every morning. You're like, You what, you play pool <laughs> with, with whom? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was kind of his ritual. So, we we asked, we're like, Do you think we could come along and film you playing pool with Henrik? And we went along and did that. And that was like, mm. for somebody who was kind of fresh into it to be like hanging about with Henrik Larson, that was really cool. Mm. Um, and then I got to do a bit of traveling with Andy Murray, it's kind of Sort of two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. Went to Shanghai and Melbourne, and mm-hmm. where else did I go? Indian Wales. And I've always really loved my tennis as well. Yeah. And that was, that was, good. that's like travelling on your own mm-hmm. to foreign countries and, and having a real adventure. Yeah, and also interviewing like a sporting legend at the same time. And that was that was really good.
0: And is it like it, that seems super glamorous? I mean, in in terms of Scottish sport, mm-hmm. certainly over the last decade, that's probably the Andy is the story to to be following. Um if, if not ever. It's how is it as glamorous as it sounds, or is it there must be a lot of hard work as well? Or uh, how um, how you know, how do you look back? Was it just every day going, Oh yes, this is gonna be a brilliant or it was really good. No, it's it's
1: really it's it, really tiring. Um because quite often with the time difference mm. you're having to get up to do Good Morning Scotland at stupid o'clock your time, or sometimes staying up late to do Good Morning Scotland, mm-hmm. but also delivering a package for reporting Scotland that have six as mm-hmm. well as cover. So it can be very tiring, but it's it's almost like everybody who's on the tennis tour is in the same world yeah. as you, so you're yeah. all kind of keeping each other going. Yeah. Um, I really liked travelling on my own, mm-hmm. um, but you are carrying, you know, a modern uh, TV filming and editing kit. Yeah and an ISDN kit to broadcast for radio. Like, you really are like a wee pack horse. Mm -hmm. Um, And some people wouldn't like that, but I kind of didn't have a problem with it until Monaco. um, That was hellish, I was in Monaco. Um, But I turned up and um, I picked up the tripod off the kind of carousel Mm -hmm. and it felt a wee bit like there was an extra bit in the tripod bag, but I was kind of let's just carry on, I'm sure this is fine. Got to the hotel, got the tripod out and it only had two legs remaining. <laughs> and I was there for like a week and it was costing an awful lot of money and you need to have steady shots. This yeah. is not even in student projects, you need to have steady yeah, shots. But for, for reporting sure. Scotland, you can't be handheld and yeah. I'm there myself. Mm-hmm. So there's no one that can hold the camera steady for me, even if they had the steadiest hand. Mm. So I then found myself trying to Buy a tripod in Monaco, yeah, which is not the cheapest no. place to buy a tripod, and also there just aren't that many tripod shops. No, 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 no. <laughs> um,
0: diamonds, diamond encrusted yeah.
1: tripods. <laughs> so that cost quite a lot of money, and also just took me out of the game for half a day. Mm. Um, but you know, Andy Murray's sense of humour is such that he found that all quite amusing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, so no, it wasn't. It wasn't all glamour, but I think. Um, to get to in, to get to interview somebody who you kind of have an inkling, yeah is one of the sporting greats, but you don't yeah. know that yet and and to kind of to see that trajectory almost happen, I think as a journalist is a is a real privilege and mm-hmm. and I think I was very lucky in that Andy is also a very very nice man, mm-hmm. and so you were dealing with someone who at the end of the day when it's and I remember once at the Australian Open. And he'd just been put out and it was like two o'clock in the morning, because, you know, they do the night sessions. Yeah. By the time he'd done his presser and then I'm sitting there going, could you do an interview for BBC Scotland on day? And he was kind of, yeah, yeah, just... And I was kind of moving chairs about and he was like, stop that, stop that. And I thought he was going to say, this is taking too long or mm-hmm. I need to get to my bed. He's like, let me move those for you. Yeah, and you're yeah. like, oh, you're such a dream. Uh, so yeah, yeah. in that respect... You were working with a very nice person, mm-hmm. at a very good point in their yeah. career, and for me, it it was it, it gave me lots of challenges of the different parts of being a journalist of mm-hmm. self shooting, self editing and doing lives into the radio. It tests kind of every part of you. Yeah. but definitely it was tiring. I, I'm yeah. not saying I didn't moan. My no, colleagues would definitely. <laughs> she's just back from Melbourne and she's moaning. <laughs> all shit. Yeah, it's freezing <laughs> <me. laughs> It was it was tiring, but it was mm-hmm. also. Very
0: enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And it help to obviously building a relationship with these people is pretty important as well? That must obviously, if you're Andy goes to a place and every single time you're turning up going, Hi Andy, it's me. So, obviously, uh-huh. that must over time, but you know, not not just that, and since you, you obviously must know people in the, in mm-hmm. the football world, and it that's mm-hmm. obviously a key part of uh, yeah. working in, in there. I have heard it said by journalists that it's not the same as, as maybe the old days when they uh-huh. might have. Long lunches with Rangers or Celtic players, and that's I think it's maybe not like that anymore. But but do you still find that there's a place for that building that relationship?
1: Yeah, I mean I think definitely it's it's easier when you're out of the country with somebody because in some ways all those kind of those barriers come down a bit because you're You're on on the same adventure. Two Scots abroad. Yeah, um, I think in terms of Celtic and Rangers, I may be wrong, but I don't think people have that kind of relationship anymore mm-hmm. that people used to have where they would take jockstein out for dinner mm-hmm. and, you know fish and chips on a friday with yeah, a can yeah. of coke you, you yeah, know when yeah. the old journalists would tell you these stories and and um archie mcpherson used to have that kind of relationship with jockstein and he would sort of advise him and they mm-hmm. I, I think that's the pr machines around football in particular mean that it's not really the case uh they don't really get to know you that well the footballers mm-hmm. um Some people do. Some people do kind of crack through it, but it's much more you're kind of at the mercy. Mm -hmm. But um, even with that, I think you're always kind of, as a journalist, you're always kind of judged by your actions, whether it's by your peers or Mm -hmm. by the people you interview. You definitely do kind of have a reputation that you carry forward with you. And that's, I mean, it's just about being a decent human being for most people. Mm -hmm. But if, if... if you were not a decent human being, word spreads quite fast.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so you're in. You've gone to London. You've come. Then you're following Andy around 2008, 2009. Yeah. Where, 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 what happens then? And for
1: um, I was doing your call as well mm-hmm. with a chap called Jim Trainer, yep. James Sexton Trainer. Right. Um, and that was an interesting one as well. So. Um,
0: so you would be the. P- person that we would so i would be listening to that come back from football and you'd be the person chiming in with the emails emails and texts emails and texts and what the internet boards were saying and that sort of thing
1: um so that was david curry did it before me and before him jim spence did it Mm -hmm. um and david a lot of my jobs that have this common factor to them david went off on paternity leave for three weeks when his daughter anya was born and i sat in for the three weeks and i never got away from it right right <laughs> um <laughs>
0: he just came back and you were sat said, seemed... yeah
1: i mean i think in radio that kind of interplay of a male and a female voice that's mm-hmm. kind of just to the ear yeah, yeah works yeah. better um i think i mean it's quite when that opportunity i thought that was a brilliant opportunity because it, it was a big program yeah. back then um but a lot of my male colleagues and almost all my colleagues were male <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh didn't want to do it they would run a mile. They'd had a shot of it sometimes and mm-hmm. they did not want to be on air with Jim because his whole shtick is kind of it was picking on the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I don't know, it just it, it didn't bother me. Right. Uh, but what you're saying about kind of, you know, personal reputations and all that, I think for a a lot of it in sports journalism in particular is competitive and mm-hmm. you don't want to be going into the Celtic or the Rangers or the Aberdeen presser as yeah. the person that Jim Traynor takes yeah, the yeah. mickey out of yeah. on a Saturday night yeah. where for me I don't know it just it, it, for me it didn't it wasn't that much of a problem yeah, for yeah. me I saw it as a laugh mm-hmm. um, and I wasn't that bothered about what yeah. it did to me for a yeah. lot of people that's how they got to know who I was yeah, yeah. in a football context so uh, yeah it did that for I don't know for
0: five years and mm. um, and that is a you know a big mainstay a, you've got a big audience then mm-hmm. listening to you so that and as you say, that obviously uh-huh. makes you a household name sort of thing.
1: Uh, I don't know about household, household but, but, but it was a... a to st- the sporting public. To the sporting household, Fo- yeah. The football public um, of Scotland. Yeah, it was weird because you start getting asked to come along and open FETs with Jim Traynor and stuff right. like that. Do <laughs> it the Tom Bowler. Mr and Mrs sport, <laughs> yeah, sports media. Yeah, we were talking about maybe having like an Edinburgh Festival fringe show at one point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, I think Jim was such a big personality mm-hmm. that it. It was something that a lot of people who didn't even like football mm-hmm. listened to that program because it was almost like I don't know a kind of cathartic experience on a Saturday night of just hearing mm-hmm. loads of like Scottish voices and people from mm-hmm. all over the country, like and it wasn't politics; it was sport, so it wasn't necessarily as kind of divisive, and and football I don't think was quite as divisive then as it mm-hmm. is now, mm-hmm. um, and so it was it was kind of you heard lots of people in Scotland on a Saturday night having a bit of a laugh mm-hmm. and it happened to be about football kind of in the same way that off the ball is about football. Yeah. But you don't need to love football to listen to it. Yeah. So I think, but the problem increasingly was that text messages took over phone calls mm-hmm. and people didn't really phone in as much. Yeah. Um And so I kind of, I was, I kind of gave it up because it, it was taken up quite a big part of my life in terms of people's awareness of me was like, that's what you do. What do you do the rest of the week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. uploads of stuff. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, So I gave up, I think, just after I got married in 2010. It was nothing to do with getting married. No. You
0: didn't, Mr. Mr. Maguire, didn't say
1: (laughs) one (laughs) condition. Yeah, yeah. Um, So yeah, I did that for a few years and then I was doing just general sports dues Mm -hmm. uh, and then I had my daughter in... 2012 there was a very very generous redundancy payment was available at that point Mm -hmm. and having been on maternity leave the thought of getting effectively a year's pay Mm -hmm. to never go back (laughs) I, I decided to not go back at that point okay although Actually the BBC puts a thing on saying you cannot come back as a freelance within a hundred days. Okay. And I came back on day ninety nine. Right. <laughs> so so I, was away, I was not away I was not for that long no, no. And I was back freelancing doing mm-hmm. I hope I hope no one's listening and doing the same job as a freelancer right, within a right. hundred days. Right, so okay. it was just a kind of change and at that point I went freelance.
0: Right. And you now you're doing lots of different things. You're obviously as you said, you're sitting and off the ball sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um but a lot of your work is in social media, which mm. uh, and it's funny. I was speaking to some um, speaking to David Melvin at Rangers TV. So he's mm. in a job that didn't exist when he entered the workforce. Yeah. Social media didn't really exist uh-huh. when you when you entered no. the workforce. How how did you sort of become aware of that? What were your you know initial forays into uh, you know in in the way that media organisations have, have embraced it and uh-huh. incorporated it as part of their shows and things now? And yeah. And
1: so I guess I was towards the edge of so with. <laughs> back when I was a student one of the other jobs I did was Jim Spence at interactive desk on lunchtime sports scene okay. and comments would come up on the lower third of R- the screen okay, yeah. and I would be in charge of putting those up and it was like viewers comments and, and a lot of people were hostile to that at that stage um, and then uh, obviously the work on your call was again it was like it was things coming from mm-hmm. the outside it was it was the non-elite getting to have a say yeah. and some people are resistant to that as well um, so social media I can see as in a sort of an extension of that listening to the audience and yeah. talking to the audience mm-hmm. not through a microphone yeah. um, so I, I guess I was kind of I was more open to that than a lot of people mm-hmm. because of the sort of the history that had come through um, and then I just kind of got quite into it. the BBC has to kind of quite tightly control what it does in radio mm-hmm. and television and online and then Social media was kind of like the Wild West where anything went. It's like, how does the BBC Mm -hmm. use these third party sites, which are owned by people who are making a mint from them? Yeah, yeah. And how much of the licence fee should be directed towards that? And Mm -hmm. I think eventually came to a sort of conclusion that you can't afford not to be on them. But you should constantly be re-evaluating how you use them Mm -hmm. and what you use them for, and especially for the BBC that you're not just lining the pockets of other other companies with shareholders who are making a lot of money. Mm -hmm.
0: And so you're you're across a lot a lot of that now. um, Question time, Uh you're involved with. I mean, you do you enjoy being at the sort of forefront of that and. you know, it, like, for example, if you're watching Question Time, then clips will quickly appear afterwards and that sort of thing. I mean, uh-huh. you, you enjoy being involved in all that?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, one of the reasons I always loved football and sport was it's what everybody talks about down the pub. Mm-hmm. I think for the last 10 years or so, politics has become what everybody talks about down mm-hmm. the pub. But it's that I love being in, involved in the stuff that everybody wants to talk about. Yeah, yeah, That's, yeah. to yeah why I like journalism mm-hmm. um, so I, I like that uh, I think Question Time's an interesting one because it's a 40 year old programme which mm-hmm. its format has basically never changed it's people round a desk there's no whizzy videos flying in it's, mm-hmm. just, it's just chat mm-hmm. and yet in audience terms young people really like it yeah like of all the BBC programmes, it's the one thing that young people seem to still engage with in mm-hmm. this era of Snapchat and YouTube and, um, and and sort of non-linear broadcasting. They still watch Question Time. And um, I think social media is a good way of connecting with audiences who mm-hmm. maybe don't find their way to the television but, but have that passion for politics and being politically aware. And so I think it's actually a really important job I do, I think my job's very important, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of going here are the debates around Brexit yeah. and even if you're not watching
0: mm-hmm.
1: traditional television yeah. it will permeate and, and yeah. you will see what Nigel Farage says and what Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. says and you'll be aware of the arguments so in that respect I think it's a, it, it is actually an important job mm-hmm. to get that information out there in question times, quite a good vehicle to do that through, um, it's it's quite fast paced and it has an element of risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, that's good for me. So for a journalist becoming a lecturer in journalism, mm-hmm. I think you're naturally going to miss some of the adrenaline of actually being at the edge and taking risks. And mm-hmm. oh, I'm allowed to say this editorially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it combines well with teaching mm-hmm. and that I still and I can talk to students about real life examples and, and how I'm still learning at 40 years old mm-hmm. I'm going oh no and you know what I learned this week was that I shouldn't have done that mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's good for students to see that Definitely. their learning journey does not stop when they leave here, that I'm still learning now, and and that can be learning in terms of editorial judgment, but also learning these new formats that keep coming up. And as you say, these jobs didn't exist. Yeah. Like texts didn't even exist really mm-hmm. when I was getting into journalism. Um, it's all going at an, a crazy pace, and you've got to keep learning all these. And, and question time really forces me to keep learning all the time, mm-hmm. which I think services the other half of my life, which is teaching, really well
0: and one of the sort of more recent things you've done for the BBC was the election cafe Oh yeah there seems to be an election or a referendum <laughs> every year in this uh-huh. country or the UK or Scotland uh-huh. uh I mean how so you, your job as producer then is yeah. that and that was and it was a so for example it's an all-night program for anyone who didn't yeah. see it was going still going at maybe eight nine o'clock in yep. the next morning eyed,
1: but still going
0: and how so there's obviously a lot of planning how and again just like you said you're involved with the thing everyone's talking about everyone's uh-huh. talking about how um how I mean, how do you enjoy that, especially if it's an evolving story overnight? How, how much planning can you do around?
1: The election cafe I really love, and and I think you can tell from my social media and the other people, that we all really love the election cafe because it's a new format as well, mm-hmm. and I really love new formats. And the idea with the election cafe was to try and capture that fact that politics is what everybody's talking about. Mm-hmm. So traditionally, your election coverage would be... David Dimbleby or Glenn Campbell mm-hmm. and they're giving you the data which mm-hmm. is swinging from this to this yeah. and then they would talk to a politician or, and then they would talk to another politician mm-hmm. and the election cafe tries to capture all the other voices mm-hmm. and all the other discussions going on um, so I loved coming up with a new format and designing a set and something that was not a TV studio mm-hmm. and pulling together those voices um, so I was really happy particularly with this year's one no last year's one uh, the 2017 the snap election we also we only had six weeks to pull the whole thing together yeah, yeah. and nobody really saw that coming no. um, so it's it's bringing together the guests it's, it's working with a presenter to have a format that you're happy with it's working with the editor to make sure you get on air enough to justify the fact mm-hmm. that you've put twenty-five of Scotland's top political commentators in the room, you know that let me on the programme. Let yeah, me yeah. on the program. So there's that kind of negotiating up the way as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's mugs and badges and things like that Give too. Me. So um we, we tried to make it the fun part of the election because mm-hmm. I think for people watching at home it is kinda like a fun experience yeah, election yeah. results night and that maybe wasn't reflected on screen. Mm-hmm. So that's I I just I like getting to start from scratch. Yeah. I'm less good with replicating a format that somebody else has come up with mm-hmm. um, so another one that I came up with a week back in the day it's probably about 2007 was um, Through the Window for Transfer Night
0: oh yeah Transfer Night yeah day. I remember, yeah,
1: just like I was oh. saying you know it actually Necessity was the mother of invention where oh, who was it did Barry Ferguson 2000... go back to Rangers on a
0: January it was January 2005 he went back
1: right so I was on on my own mm-hmm and it was 11 o'clock at night and there was nobody there to help me. And it's like they did mm-hmm. like a press conference. At, was it like half nine at night I, or something?
0: I actually lived on a street at the time. So I was just waiting for <laughs> my pal texting me to tell me he'd come back. Uh, so so
1: it was an example of our resources were not there. Mm-hmm. Everybody was at home, and this actually a huge story was happening. Yeah, yeah. So I said we should put resources mm-hmm. where the stories might happen, yeah, yeah, rather than like you had a whole staff during the day and nobody at night. Anyway, that was a great idea. Except after that, the kind of the bottom fell out of the transfer market. Yeah, nobody yeah, ever did anything like that ever, mm, ever again. Yeah. Um, but that was another. Let's come up with a new. I love doing yeah. that.
0: And so when there's a snap election, mm-hmm. do you go right? I've got an idea. Are we already ahead of the game, or does Someone in BBC <laughs> Pick up the red bat phone And go Annie We need L. you Or how, how does that come How do you sort of get Get into that
1: I was on the phone To my boss Daniel Maxwell mm-hmm. And I was I was like By the way there's Theresa May is going to make an announcement, and I think this is going to be election. And He said, No, it's not. And mm. I was like, See the um, the lectern that she's standing at? It doesn't have the branding on it. So if it's a government announcement, it would have. And I was like, There's no government branding. Ah, this right. is a party it's political Columbo. You watch
0: Colombo as well, don't
1: you? <laughs> um, and I was like, She's going to, she's going to. And then she came out while we we're on the phone, and he just kind of hung up on me <laughs> <laughs> and ceremoniously And then they'll kind of be he phoned me back for like three seconds to say the words, you're doing an election cafe and hung up on me again. Mm -hmm. um, And you just kind of go, there are kind of no rules and there's actually at that stage no budget Mm -hmm. because no one has allocated any funds to this. So you just kind of, you just start. And um, it's uh, key for me is getting those political commentators in the room before anybody else books them mm-hmm. for their channel and yeah. if you can get a critical mass with those kind of things mm-hmm. if you've got like Peter Gagin and David mm-hmm. Torrance and Angela Haggerty mm-hmm. and then people start to want to go to your party <laughs> rather than the smaller party mm-hmm. like so that's kind of we went to work pretty quickly on that but I mean the BBC's a brilliant place to work in that respect and that the technical side of things, they start getting to work as mm-hmm. well, and then a week later you go right. What? How? Are we, how are we technically going to do this? And some brilliant minds have come up with some ideas yeah, yeah. of how you're going to do that. That's that's what I love about the BBC is everybody is amazing at their bit of the job, and mm-hmm. you don't really need to encroach onto their area very much. Yeah, because they do their thing and they do it brilliantly. So yeah, um, so yeah that was fun. <laughs> and, uh, and staying up all night. You know, it helps if you put a team of people round about you who are as enthusiastic for the project. And uh, in this occasion, the, um, the exit poll really meant that nobody was wanting to go to sleep anyway, because yeah, it was yeah. so exciting at that point. Mm-hmm. And the one production thing that I overlooked was I didn't have a camera on people watching the election the exit poll result because that was kind of that was an incredible moment that till the end of my days I wish I had have captured just all the spin doctors watching that come in and just like it was like all the oxygen went out of the room because of just this "Ah!" Yeah, yeah. And then we were like, okay, we're on here in thirty seconds, and yeah. we were trying to like get people calmed down again. Yeah, it was a yeah. really great moment, and if I was a better producer, I would have anticipated that and put a camera on it.
0: Mm. But you must be in the part of your head going, yeah, this is going to be exciting. Now rather than going, uh-huh. someone's going to win by a long, long way, and it's yeah, there's no real.
1: because we would, um, the BBC are also very good at rehearsing, mm. and okay. we rehearsed various different ah, okay. scenarios so, so that we had them kind of so that you don't. Think everything's a foregoing conclusion, yeah. but none of the scenarios had been that far along the spectrum. Okay. We were like, "Oh, it's that scenario!" <laughs> oh,
0: awesome. Um, just to finally touch on, then you're you're obviously lecturing now, um, and you you feel that's a good compliment to your own mm-hmm. to your own work, or your work's a good compliment to to both. Or is a, yeah, is, is it's a good mix.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I always had a kind of a teacher in me somewhere, mm-hmm. and. I think my dad was probably right that you're better to go out and have some adventures and travel the world and bring all that to bear on yeah. teaching people rather yeah. than just trying to teach people from yep. a textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think when you're a student, your your view of university is just teaching. Mm-hmm. That's kind of all you see that goes on in yeah, the university. Yeah, yeah. So I think when I came in, I was kind of a bit, oh, right, teaching, yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's there's much more to working in a university than just the teaching and and I've had to kind of adjust to that but it opens up new opportunities as well. So I'm doing a PhD um, and, and I never saw myself doing a PhD <laughs> but that's uh, really opened up my mind to, oh this is actually... There's a lot of crossover between journalism and doing a PhD that I would Mm -hmm. never have seen, as in you are trying to find something original and exclusive and you're going to do all the research and you're going to tell that story to the world and people are going to love it. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that respect, it's quite similar, but I I had no awareness of that world whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's a good compliment and it's pushing me a bit further, which I think... In our midlife stage, Jamie. Um, I think, and I would say this is the same for people who have, you know, BBC lifers, as they call them. You are sort of looking for something a wee bit different, Mm -hmm. something to develop you once you've kind of, you've sort of, not that I'm saying I'm a master of my job, but you've kind of, you've come as far as you're going to go Mm -hmm. in your first, in your kind of career. And then you think, right, what am I going to do Mm -hmm. for the second half of my career? Yeah. Um, And I think this has fallen really nicely for me, although it was never part of the plan, um, I love it's almost like working in a newsroom full of young people mm-hmm. which I think I just love I yeah. love all their energy and their ideas and and their kind of their idealism mm-hmm. um, that they can go out and change the world and you yeah. lose a wee bit, a bit of, that, of that the older you get. And I think working in, in an environment like a university keeps that wee spark alive in you of like, well, why not? Why can't we go and do whatever we want to do? Mm-hmm. Um, the students here are brilliant and they're full of ideas and, and it's really exciting. It's weird, but nothing makes me happier than when a student or a graduate phones to say they've got a job mm-hmm. because it's that feeling of oh you're about to you have just jumped off on a big adventure and you're really excited and it's, it's weird mm-hmm. I kind of said to my husband before, why am I so excited this is actually nothing to do with me but it's just that anticipation yeah. and knowing that they are about to start something that's going to be brilliant yeah.
0: and you've played a part in their own journey uh, as well it's to tell you they must uh, they must feel that uh-huh. You know, you're you're always important to them, or else they wouldn't have. Uh-huh. It's just
1: such a buzz when they—that's—that's what this is all about for me—is—is mm-hmm. is that moment where they get a job and they're excited, and you're excited for them, and it's almost like pushing off somebody else's boat and going go and have a great big journey.
0: Annie, thank you very much indeed for telling me how you ended up here. Thank you, Jamie. That's all for this time. Thanks very much for downloading or streaming this episode. And thanks, of course, to Annie Maguire for sitting down with me. You can follow me on Twitter. It's simple enough. I'm at and Give me any thoughts you have. And you can also follow Annie on Twitter. She's at Annie underscore Maguire. Goodbye for now. And I'll be back in the next week or so with the next edition of How Did You End Up Here?